Welcome to WeAreTechnology.com's User-Friendly 2.0 with host Bill Sickens, Technology Architect. And this is User-Friendly 2.0. I'm your host, Bill Sickens. Joining me, Gretchen and Bill, welcome to this week's show. Hi there. Hello. Hello, hello. All right, well, we're going to be talking virtual reality and we're going to be talking tabletop gaming a little bit in the second segment here. So something to stick around for. And um, I'm not going to give you too much of a spoiler on this, but there's some new things that are coming out that are definitely worth checking out in both of those arenas. That'll be coming up in the second half of the show. As for right now, let's go ahead and just dive right into the news. What do we have this week? Okay. Nuclear fusion reaction releases almost twice the energy put in. So explain this to me. Uh, Well, uh, Nuclear fusion is releasing almost twice the energy put in. Oh, thank you. (laughs) No problem. Happy to help. No. Slap. (laughs) So um, they've been working, and we've talked about this on the show in the past, on fusion, not to be confused with fission, which is what we think of it or what is a nuclear reactor today. So this is the idea of being able to generate energy in a way that does not have the downside of things like meltdowns and can create a lot of energy that would be conceivably green energy is the same way that our sun works. So while this has been something that has been on physics radar and other things for a long time, it's in recent years that they've been starting to make some progress to actually see where this could become a reality at some point in the future. The problem with it up until recently had been that the amount of energy it took to create fusion was greater than what you got from the fusion. So you were losing energy, which wasn't the goal. So what they're talking about here is something where they're starting to see higher yields. They're saying practical fusion is still a bit of a way off, but it is a historic milestone that they're now getting twice the energy out of doing these experiments than what they are putting into them, which means you're actually producing more energy than you're consuming, which makes it definitely viable. So the cost and stuff of putting all this together is still very much in an experimental stage. but we are seeing positive results, which will drive this. And at some point, the hope is that we will see fusion reactors that will one day create clean energy and replace a lot of the other stuff that we're having problems with now. Getting this working would solve a lot of problems. Mm-hmm. New Gmail rules to start blocking emails. So believe it or not, this is actually a good thing even though the way this has been billed may not sound like it. And it's not just Google, but it's Yahoo. So what's going on here is the email providers have figured out that a lot of their email people that use their email systems are having trouble with spam. Mm -hmm. Uh, Like that's something new, (laughs) but there's a lot of identity theft schemes and other stuff that come through with these. And Google specifically has been working on trying to limit this. I have both a Google or Gmail and a Yahoo account. And I think Google's doing a better job seeing what's coming in, although Yahoo hasn't been terrible, but you still see a lot more on their platform than you do with Google. Right. So what's happening here is they are using a combination of AI and other things to try to eliminate as much as possible the junk coming in to the point of blocking something like 19 billion emails a day that are spam. So there is some success to the system. However, it's not enough. So what they want to start doing and what I think will actually be of a benefit is that anybody that sends 
more than I think it's 5,000 messages a day to various Gmail accounts or Yahoo accounts has to go through an extra level of authentication or the sending address will simply be blocked. So this only applies to bulk email senders, which is a very small part. This isn't you sending an email to your wife or something. This is marketing stuff and that type of a thing that can be spoofed. And in a lot of cases is, which creates this type of a situation. And this is something actually we've been running into with a couple of our weird technology clients. We're having to do the updates to be able to make this work properly. And you have to go in and authenticate your domain in a way that allows the email companies uh, that are receiving it, like Gmail and Yahoo, to know that it's coming from where it's supposed to and all that kind of thing. And if you don't, then right now it sends an error, but the message is still delivered. But starting, I believe, next month or in April, it will be blocked altogether. So if you're a company that relies on bulk email for whatever purpose, and there's a lot of very legitimate reasons that companies would do this, whether it's sending out billing or something like that, or even marketing materials that you subscribe to. Example of this would be Home Depot sends coupons if you sign up for them every so often, but that would be a bulk email sender that's for a legitimate purpose. Uh, Anyone like that needs to check out what the requirements are, which is defined on Gmail and Yahoo's various websites. You can look them up. I'm not going to go into those details here. Uh, just because it's too much to try to talk about. But there's basically a process where you go in, authenticate your domain, get things locked down, and then it should continue to work properly without errors right now. And emails will still get to your customers. The idea being here that the bad guys that won't be able to authenticate, won't be able to spoof legitimate domains as easily. Um, They say not at all. I don't agree with that. I think they will figure out a way to do it. Yeah. But it will make it much harder. So that's a good thing. And hopefully we'll start to limit some of these type of emails where they're really costing a lot of people a lot of money that fall for them. So when you hear about this, this is what's actually going on. Now, other question on this is what do you have to do if you have a Gmail or Yahoo account? Nothing. The changes apply to the bulk senders, not to those of us that are just using them for email. So hopefully what this will mean to us is we're going to see less spam. That's what all this kind of comes down to. Cool deal. All right. Disney. Fox, Warner Brothers Discovery to create joint streaming platform. Yeah, this and you know, smart. <laughs> I think this, I, I agree with you on that. I think this is something that makes a lot of sense to do because there are many sports lovers out there that would like a way to be able to get to their games and their favorite things without having to subscribe to multiple streaming platforms. And streaming fatigue is really becoming a thing. And this is something that will probably help out a lot for those that have an interest in this type of programming and what it's what they're planning. They haven't named the service yet, but what they're planning is something that would have the ability to stream sports content as well as getting the classic television channels like ESPN, TNT, Fox Sports, and so on all in one shot. So it's one subscription that you can get, or you can add it on to if you already have Disney plus Hulu or some of these other ones that they're partnering with discovery um, and so on to be able to just get it, get your sports content all together in one spot. The other thing that's interesting about it too, is it's actually going to probably cost a little bit less because you aren't going to need the multiple subscriptions to be able to get to the content from all of the different sources. I think it's a win-win because I think the providers are going to find an uptick in subscriptions because more people will be able to access it from just the one location and will subscribe to that as opposed to doing multiple. 
throw up their hands and say, well, we don't want to do any of it at all. So we're going to see this coming up and they're going to be rolling it out. And as far as exact dates and all that kind of stuff, that will be announced and we will cover it here as soon as we know. I think they have to probably get a name for this system first and yeah. then we'll probably find out a lot more of the details when that happens. <laughs> Three million malware infected smartware, yeah, smart toothbrushes used in Swiss DDoS attacks. Botnet causes millions of euros in damage. I always thought brushing your teeth was overrated. Okay, maybe not. But I think having smart a smart toothbrush, toothbrush is really strange. <laughs> so, you know, I was trying to figure that out, too, because I, like, I have a Sonic here, but it's not a smart toothbrush. It's an electric toothbrush. It's know, just a good toothbrush. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so first of all, let's talk about that a little bit, because what is even a smart toothbrush? This is a device that has an app where it can sync up. So when you brush your teeth, it gives you a report, essentially, on brushing your teeth and other such things. Uh, oral health and all that kind of stuff. I've not actually used one, so I can't speak to whether they're accurate or even worth having, but that's what this device would be. Now, the thing of it is, and what's going on here is the fact that like any other smart device, they're essentially a little computer, uh, in this case, that's built into a toothbrush. And the uh, bad guys have been able to get into this and hijack the computer within these toothbrushes to create a botnet. So there's all these little devices that are sending out small amounts of data that they can target at a website or internet provider or service or something like that. And when they do enough of them, it causes that service to stop working because it essentially overloads the system. Denial of service, that's what it is. So anyway, smart devices are looked at for vulnerabilities. And this is one of the reasons why the knockoffs on smart devices, copies of branded things and that type of stuff, are difficult because you don't really know what's going on. So if you have a security camera that's cheap and it does work online, you don't necessarily know that the security is being thought about or that the signal can't be hijacked in some way. And this could certainly happen with name brands too, but they do tend to put a lot more into keeping things secure. So what do you do about this? If you have a smart Toothbrush, you want to make sure that you update the smart toothbrushes firmware. Another thing that I don't think I'd ever thought I'd be doing, but that is how they fix it. And hopefully the manufacturer has done this to where you can actually even download it and do it. And hopefully it's automatic, but that isn't always the case. Now, usually, and this can vary from device to device, but you would go into the app, see there's a way in there to see what firmware is on your device, and it will tell you if you need to update it and how to do it which usually would involve keeping your toothbrush near your phone while it's installing the new software. Um, I think I'm going to stick with my dentist and the x-rays for right now. I'm all about technology, but there is something about this that seems a little bit, um, I don't know, unnecessary. <laughs> yeah, it's like overkill. Yeah. Okay, this one has kind of a book of Boba Fett to, um, to me. Migrant moped gang hired hacker to breach banking apps as New York Police Department reveals new details about sophisticated high-tech crime ring. I don't know. Oh, I think that almost sounds cyberpunk. Well, yeah, it does sound like this cyberpunk, is, but I was thinking about the, the kids the on the mopeds. They're sort of like mopeds, those speeder bikes. Remember them? Oh, yeah. Were, no, I know what you're talking about. Yeah. And all the way around, yeah, there is this kind of feeling. So crime's going high-tech, not that that's a new thing. but So 10,000-foot view of this. Uh, this happened in, in New York where the 
individual was arrested or the group of individuals that they picked up for this is to steal a cell phone, hack into it. And then from that, they're getting into the user's BMO, Zelle accounts, bank accounts, all that kind of stuff. They clear out the accounts, make purchases at stores or transfer money to other accounts or just simply cash it out. And again, what's happening here is they've actually hired a professional hacker to teach the crime gang how to do this successfully. And they have achieved it. Um, you know, so in the particular case that was cited in the report that the police department put out is the thieves made off with a woman's bags, keys, phones, credit card, and glasses. And from this, they were able to use the hacker to hack into the phone. And then on the phone was her banking apps and so on. And they were able to get into it. It's just one example of a lot of different things that are going on. And I know we're seeing versions of this kind of thing all over the world, because as people don't carry cash so much anymore, the bad guys have to figure out another way. And they tend to be more violent and in your face as a, for example, in South Africa, they're having a problem where they will uh, hijack cars off the freeway, force someone off the road and rob them and then kidnap them and take them to a secondary location where they force them to give them their passwords so that they can clear out electronic things on their phone and be able to steal money that way, pin codes and and wow. in a lot of cases, it's very difficult to get these funds back because in cases where if your credit card gets stolen and someone runs it up or those type of things, you can usually, you usually have insurance. You can call a credit card provider and get things handled. Zelle is a situation that once you've sent the money, it's sent. It, you're probably not going to get it back, even if you can prove that it was stolen. So you've got to be careful with these things. And it just goes from there. So the question is, what do you, what do you do about it? Because a lot of people, myself included, do banking online. Rich, and I know you try to avoid this. Yeah, I don't use, I don't use my phone ever for banking. Yeah, for that. So I think one of the things that would be advisable is to maybe have a secondary device if you really want to secure yourself from this that isn't your phone, but that has your banking stuff on it. And to do that may not be feasible because it requires buying and having a second device in service and all the rest of it, but it would separate them from each other. Although. I do also think personally, if I had a gun to my head, I would give them the password and I have to leap out that word, but give them the password because, you know, your life is worth more than whatever's in the checking account. But it is definitely a problem that is brewing, not just in New York, but all over the world. And at the end of the day, they are addressing it here, but there's other parts of the world where they're not. So you know, crime's going high tech. This that's not new, but it is interesting to see something that is a very much a example of stuff that's starting to happen that is kind of scary. Maybe we need high tech heroes now. You know, I think I think we're we're definitely headed in that direction. And speaking of which, uh, I, I'll mention this again later in the show, but I know that the first Cyberhawk book is coming out, so yeah. uh, this is a good segue to that and. Uh, so Gretchen, you're, it's going to be on Amazon. I know you wrote this, so it's being distributed on Amazon and yes. what, a couple of weeks, I think. Yeah. I can't <laughs> wait to be able to buy a copy. We'll let you know how to get it as soon as we know. All right. What's next in the news? James Webb Space Telescope makes rare detection of two exoplanets orbiting dead stars. Yeah. And I found this, um, I don't know, depressing somehow, uh, really? <laughs> the way that it was presented. Oh. Not that this was done. So, okay, news article here is James Webb Telescope, as the headline says, has found two 
exoplanets that it's actually been able to see that are about the size of something like Jupiter. Uh-huh. And the reason I said this was kind of a depressing article is because it's what our solar system eventually is going to look like when our sun goes oh, and dies. Of course, that's going to be hopefully after the end of my lifetime, but uh, will eventually be the case where it looks like the sun has destroyed the planets that would have been orbiting closer than use the equivalent our Jupiter. Yeah. And left the gas giants out there. Yeah. Okay. I, I can see how that would be kind of like sad. It's like, it's like discovering uh, a space graveyard, you know? Yeah. 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 A snapshot of our unit of our future. Now to circle back to actually this being an amazing scientific thing with the telescope, because it is, <laughs> is really kind of cool because actually seeing exoplanets just at all, uh, we know they're out there, but uh, seeing something in kind of this detail yeah. is really quite amazing. So information about it, you can check out uh, James Webb. On NASA or space.com would be where a lot of the details on this are. And there's some really cool pictures and videos and stuff out there where you can see what we're actually seeing through this kind of technology. And it really is quite amazing. I discovered Am that I-, um, I think the um, the web net, um, website is a little bit better for the images than the NASA one. So okay. if, if, if the details and stuff like that is more important, go to the web one. It's not that the NASA you, one's bad, but. but the other one's more detailed. Can you put that in a social media post? Sure. Throw it out on, on X and Facebook and we will uh, have the links of where to go because there is a lot of interest in this. And rightfully, there should be because it's really kind of cool what can be done here. Yeah, the pictures are but, amazing. Um, but yeah. Yeah. So check it out. Okay. Nine night sky events to chase in 2024 from solar eclipses to meteor showers. So we're in a space. Speaking of space. (laughs) Yeah. yeah, We'll do the space theme here. So we got some stuff coming up and uh, we'll also go ahead and throw this out in our social media link to get this list, but just to go over it, uh, we're going to have a lunar eclipse on March 25th. Uh, Lunar eclipse is formed when the sun, moon and earth are partially aligned and the earth obstructs the sun's light to cover up part of the shadow. And there is a name of this that I cannot pronounce, but you can look at it on their page if you want to. In any event, this will be visible um, Europe, North, East Asia, North America, South America, Arctic, and Antarctic. Hey, you'll be able to see it pretty much from where you are. And these things are cool to look at. You're going to look at an eclipse, get the appropriate screen or glasses, because even a little bit can damage your eyes. And it's uh, definitely something we want to think about solar more than lunar, but still, it's a good idea to take precautions. And speaking of which, there will be a total solar eclipse on April 8th. And I did not get to see the one a few years ago because of where we are or where we were at the time. But where we are now, we should be able to see it, which will be kind of fun. We'll have to go check that out and cover it when it actually happens. So uh, this is the other way when the moon passes through the sun and the earth and the sun or the sky goes dark in the middle of the day because the sun's blocked. Now, total eclipse means you actually go to all what feels like a night sky for a few minutes. Again, you definitely want the screens to view it. Don't look at it directly, because even though it's dark, that can really hurt your eyes. That being said, they are cool to see. There was a big party for the last one. I think maybe we'll have to go check that one. It's on April 8th. Then we have a couple of meteor showers coming up. April 25th, another one on May 6th. Those are always kind of fun to see. Another one on August 11th, 12th, which is one of the bigger ones. Then later in the year, just in time for Halloween, we are going to have a supermoon, which is going to be kind of cool. That's when the moon's close to the Earth and there's a partial lunar eclipse. So that's going to step out there. 
Another eclipse on April or on October 2nd, another supermoon on October 17th. So check these things out. Let us know what you think of them. I think we are definitely going to have to check out the full eclipse this year. So, all right. So moving on here, we talk about pop culture in the show, and pop culture can mean a lot of things. And for us, it means George Gershwin. Oh, yeah. An opportunity to see this. And Gretchen, why don't you tell us a little bit about this? Okay. Um, we got the opportunity to see um, the Oregon Symphony performing in a um, small town auditorium, the George, Fa- uh, George Fox uh, University Auditorium in Newburgh, Oregon. And they did this amazing performance of some of George Gershwin's pieces. Um, let's see. Uh, there was the Cuban overture. Rhapsody in Blue, I know, was a yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, the Rhapsody in Blue was amazing. And they also did some other things that um, were nice surprises. There was a uh, young pianist who uh, was featured. Oh, my God. He was amazing. You just would watch him. It was just, just amazing. Yes. Watch. Oh, man. And then he surprised everybody by doing uh, a, a second tune. And he whips out a violin and he's sitting there playing the violin. And you're like, wow, he's a great pianist and he's a great violin. It was, it was, and everything was memorized too. It must be some kind of disciple. Ah, he's just a genius. He's just an amazingly genius. talented oh, genius. <laughs> then after he was done, there was another surprise because they were doing um, various tunes from Porgy and Bess. And um, this woman and this man come out, they sit down, and then the lady starts singing. And I think the audience was spellbound. She was just so amazing. And after she sang her first tune, I heard the man behind me go, wow. He was like. I have to agree with that. Yeah. And, and And the man who sang was great, too. You know, but it was just like, I don't think any of us were expecting that. (laughs) And she was just, wow. What did you think, Bill? Both of the vocalists were just amazing. The whole thing was really well produced, well done. The conductor was very social. He could play to the audience, which was Mm -hmm. really kind of nice because he was explaining a lot of stuff, you know, as they were doing different things and just making an amazing presentation. I highly recommend, if you can, attending these kind of concerts, presentations, whatever they would be called. Live music. Just because it is so amazing to see that side of things. And we don't get to see it a lot. Yeah. Live music, there's an energy that you just feel from being in the room with musicians. It's great. Was just people that are amazing and great at their definitely something to check out. We'll put some pictures out of that. All right, next segment we're gonna be talking tabletop gaming and virtual reality. So don't go away. This is user Welcome back. This is User-Friendly 2.0. Check out our website, userfriendly.show. That is your one-stop place. Send us your questions, your comments, listen to back episodes, and we even have some new Tech Wednesday articles coming up. 
which I know is amazing. We've been promising that for a while, but it is actually happening. So, you know, things, good things do come to those who wait, I suppose. You can also get to all of our social media there, and there is a form for booking time if you would like to be a guest on the show. So check it all out, userfriendly.show. Let us know what you think. All right, Bill, so we've been talking a little bit in the past about gaming, and I know, you know, for many years, obviously, and it doesn't seem like there's been a lot of really new, exciting stuff lately. The Game Developers Conference is coming up, so we'll see what comes from there. But it sounds like you had something that is worth a discussion. Uh, yeah, Chaosium uh, sent me over uh, Call of Cthulhu Arkham, which is a campaign setting for their Call of Cthulhu line. And it covers basically the area around Arkham, Massachusetts, which is a fictional city, as we all know. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but uh, it, it's a very in-depth campaign setting. Um, I don't know. If other people may play D and D, like Forgotten Realms or Greyhawk. Those are campaign settings that set up where you know, people and locations and little specific rules and stuff for those areas. Um, this here does the same thing, um, covering history of the area, um, how it's built, you know, how the city is set up in multiple districts, how you know, you set up your investigators, which are your player characters. Um, various little rules about, you know, getting weaponry, like you have to go get a weapons permit from the police station before you carry a handgun or something like that in the game. Little tidbits. And of course, 1920s, I never thought there was weapons permits in that time period. But yeah, why now? <laughs> hey, why not, you know? <laughs> but. uh it really broke it down very well for people to use. Um, covering the various neighborhoods, such as um, downtown and campus. The campus is well known through uh, Call of Cthulhu literature and such, and other games, as well as the original um, HP Lovecraft material. Miskatonic University is very popular in some of those books and stories so it's very interesting to see it brought all together and uh this newer update that's cool have to... now have you actually played it out yet it's not a game uh like uh we used to run it's a campaign setting so it's right. gives just just like the areas the locations so you can make your own stories using these areas places and people and rules Something like this would be more like the framework. And, you know, it's an interesting topic because this gets asked a lot. We talk about Dungeons and Dragons, well-known role-playing game. But it's a genre called fantasy role-playing. And a lot of times people ask, well, what if we're not into fantasy? What if we're into something else? Well, there's probably a game for you. Oh, yeah. And these settings work towards that. So, you know, I didn't know until you just said it's a 1920s setting. That's cool. You know, that's something that would be very different. Whether or not they needed gun permits back then, hey, well, no. But the point being is that there's a lot of different <laughs> options for different things, and, and fantasy role playing being one. But the superheroes. Uh, when I was in high school, we had a game called Champions. I don't know if it's still out there, but it was really kind of well done superhero genre type game. And then there's other stuff where you just play. there's even modern things where you play in the real world. 
not sure I'd want to do that because I I, do that when I go to the grocery store, but you know, (laughs) I had, I had one, um, that we call, it was called top secret and you were playing like James Bond type character. Yeah. So that was fun. I mean, I have campaigns or game, not campaign settings, but, uh, rule books for different anime based ones. Um, there's all kinds out there if you really look into it um some of them are good some of them are not so good as we found out with one of the star trek ones um (laughs) yeah i'm not saying it was fine but it took four of us to figure out how combat worked (laughs) and i'm not sure we completely did we got it to sort of work but i don't know that we were doing it right you know and that's one thing too about i remember Gretchen? I remember that it was just hard to do anything, yeah. let alone combat, just do anything in that game. Yeah. So my reaction to that was one hard. was, is, you know, for gaming, you want things to be workable and have the feeling of reality. But I don't think I want to have to go to Starfleet Academy to learn how to run the Star Trek role playing game, <laughs> which is about what yeah. that came down to. But but yeah, and it's just so I have. So I have a question for Bill Snodgrass. Um, for this uh, Call of Cthulhu, would it be advised for people wanting to develop um, their own adventures? Would it be advised for them to read the original uh, Lovecraft stories? I'd say you probably got into it that way. Um, I know that for me it helps because then it sets, you know, kind of the feeling. Um, mm-hmm. Lovecraft was very much into different. Uh, types of horror, the Eldritch horror and the space cosmology horror stories and stuff like that. You had these different ranges, so they all kind of fit into this. And I think it helps a lot to set up how you're going to play it and feel it. But, um, you know, just starting out, even like I said, with this campaign setting, it helps bring a lot of that to life. So I know and I know personally when I put games together, having these kind of resources available does make it a lot easier. You know, something that you can plug into so that you have an environment and you're able to kind of build on top of it. Um so it can definitely be well, it's that enthusiasm. Yeah. The enthusiasm for the for the topic or the setting, I think can really make a difference for players and person in charge of the game. The settings yeah. really do. And you know what the players and what a group likes to do works into this. And there's like, like you say, there's a lot of different things. We talked about Star Trek. Another one that I know Bill and I really like is cyberpunk. And Gretchen, you don't care for that one so much, you know? So yeah. you have to look at that kind of a stand. You like a world where everything's very violent and you're a robot. Um, it's good. But if you don't, then you might not want to play that, you know? And See, uh, I like the robots. It's it's the ultra insane violence yeah. that just yeah. actually it's c- uh, cyborgs would be the appropriate term. And since the world's going in that direction, we're going to hope that that's a manual on what not to do. But we'll see how yeah. the humans feel. <laughs> so, <laughs> but um, but in all seriousness, yeah, it just kind of comes down to what you want to do and what it's about. And the other side of it too is there's in some things a bit of a reputation that's negative among some religious communities and stuff of role-playing, which is also not earned because it, again, depends on exactly what you're looking at. There's stuff out there that is very family-oriented, completely appropriate, and there's other stuff that, like, 
was talking about that might be very violent that you wouldn't want your kids around and everything in between. It's the same thing as with movies and books and everything else. So it's a matter of looking at it and figuring out how you want to do it. And the one thing that I love about these type of games is it's one of the few areas where there's still actually social interaction involved in an activity that's not <laughs> on the computer, you know? And yes, you can role play online, Roll20 and D&D Beyond and all of these things, which actually do a decent job of bringing that up where it's needed. But I don't know. I still find it fun to go somewhere and actually like talk to real people in person, you know? You're dealing with real people, but in person, I guess, would be the right term. <laughs> and and have that aspect of, of, of community. I mean, you know, it's uh, in the modern world seems to be something that we have less of. And since the whole COVID thing, have a lot less of because a lot of us have really changed. And in some ways better, you know, like remote working. I like that. I like not having to drive and commute and all that kind of thing. But it does take the actual direct social interaction away. So having something that, um, you know, you can still get together on the weekend and, and something you all enjoy and do it in person makes a lot of sense, I think. Oh, yeah. yeah. And that's the thing about role-playing <laughs> games. And like going into the family that you were talking about, you know, there is a My Little Pony cam uh, game that is very well made you know kids and adults alike and on the other end you have uh the goblin slayer ttg rpg which is very grim dark and very um not kid friendly yep <laughs> yeah but you this know is, it is a you know in the fantasy campaign the thing is is you know when when we originally started hearing about groups complaining that D was evil or something nobody was playing anything really dark and evil the game was pretty benign um for the most part people played heroes and you were heroes defeating evil you know and that was pretty much the what i ran into when i played with people yeah. and nobody was going off the deep end thinking they were their own characters it was make-believe just like what little kids used to do before computers and so much television. You know, they went the big, outside and pretended to be their heroes. The big thing with, with original, this would have been chain mail, actually, controversial stuff started back in the 60s, is that uh, you could cast spells. So, oh boy, it's, you know, some way. Again, like you say, oh. you're dealing with something where you're looking at a fictional experience. And then, as far as I know, there's never been an aspect of this where you're supposed to go out and actually try to be the character you're playing in some way. And if somebody <laughs> does take it too far, they're probably predisposed to do that anyway. And it's not, you know, it's not that. So, like I say, it's it's a reputation that I don't think is earned. Now, there are certainly some role-playing games which are extremely dark, like Bill was just saying, that, you know, you don't want the kids around. I don't know if I'm old enough for some of them, you know. So, uh, <laughs> it's just a matter of... Uh, of figuring those things out and that can exist pretty much in every you know every aspect of this type of thing that there is so so gretchen i gotta ask you you know the cyberhawk the first book is coming out here in a couple of weeks you'll be able to get it on amazon and we'll let you know how to do that when it's when it's available on kindle and physical copy when do we have the cyberhawk role-playing game Ooh, i don't know i have to think about fun. that too you know i mean <laughs> Um, yeah, <laughs> Major Bluster would be the highest ranking, you know, person in the series, of course, for the game, probably like the overseer or something. 
And for anybody that has no clue what we're talking about, about, when the books are available, check it out. We will let you know how to do that. All right. So moving right along here, the other thing that we had in Tech Wednesday and we've been asked a lot about is to circle back and talk a little bit about virtual reality. Now, this is a topic we've had on the show many times, but what's going on right now is we have Apple's Vision Pro, which has come out onto the market, and there's a lot of hype that this is creating. Now, anybody that knows me knows that I I have nothing against Apple. I don't tend to use Apple products. I have Android versus iPhone, that kind of stuff, just mainly because I've always worked in open environments, and it's a little harder for me to get into where you're walled in. But Apple does make good quality products. I have no argument with that. And they also drive the market. So smartphones or Android phones are primarily because the iPhone came out. There's a lot of tablets, the iPad. Tablets existed prior to the iPad, but there was no real adoption of them until Apple came up with a way to use them properly. iPad came out, Android tablet became a big have them. You know, in fact, I think there's more tablets out there now than there are desktop PCs just because of the form factor and the fact that they do and do well, you know, most of the things you've got. So virtual reality is something we've had the MetaQuest, Facebook MetaQuest, uh, two, three for a while now, um, the Oculus and a number of other products like that, which I've enjoyed playing with. We all have uh, MetaQuest 2. I know we're going to get yours working again pretty soon. Uh, and mine too. And um, the uh, but the bottom line of it is is that Facebook renamed themselves Meta with the idea of the metaverse being the next big thing, which hasn't really materialized. However, I think that we could see some changes in the adoption of virtual reality because the Vision Pro is coming out, and not necessarily because people are buying this specific headset, but because it's giving the idea of what you can do with a headset like this. So. Let's talk about this. A little secret. I got to try one out and I didn't. I really didn't need it, actually. I, uh, it's one of the first Apple products I've. Well, I had an iPod, the music player. This is probably next to it, something that I think is reasonably well done. I did have to send it back because it was a demo, but I will tell you from what I got to see on this number one, the big problem that I've had with a lot of these is the fact that my vision and the headset don't seem to be compatible with each other sometimes. Uh, I wear glasses and I need to be able to do that. And they've built this in a way that it seems to work just fine with all of that. Uh, the images were clear. Really? Um, there was there, there weren't any weird problems. It was easy to set up and that kind of thing. Now, I will tell you that like with many Apple products, your the new Meta Pro, uh, there's a three and there's a Pro. And the most expensive one is $1,000.999, and Apple starts at $34.99. So you're looking at a huge difference in price. So this is like, you know, the same thing with a lot of their other products. You will definitely pay for more. So that is one of the deals that I think if there's an issue is going to limit it a little bit because people can't afford that amount of money. But if you can, you seem to get a very well-made device. There was a durability test. I did not do this. I promise Apple actually got back from me that was in pieces was not this. (laughs) <laughs> but there was a durability test done where somebody bought one of these and tried to see what he could do to break it. The first thing is, is he spent about 40 minutes trying to walk into walls. Didn't mess it up at all. <laughs> Not the, and most people wouldn't do that. Plus it also has a mode where you can see what's going on in the environment around you. It works pretty well, frankly. But um, he had that and then he dropped it and did a bunch of other things with it. And 
interesting thing about it is, is what broke on it first was not the glass like you would expect. It was a crack in the band around the hinge and the speaker stopped working. This was after like a lot of abuse. And he finally did manage to break the glass on the front of it and, you know, and, and get to that point. But it was, from what we can see, very well made. And it, it took a lot that most of us wouldn't do to do it. Now, and it's Apple. So how much does it cost to replace the glass on the front of it, you might ask? Well, at least it's not $800. It's $799 for that piece of glass. So, <laughs> you know... Uh, again, you're dealing with costs. Now, one of the unusual things about this that I am not sure that um, what I think of it yet, I don't think I hate it. I'm not sure I love it, is that it has a thing built into it where it has a screen on the front where everybody else can see you and it projects your eyes, what your eyes look like into this front screen. So it's like you're not in this walled off environment. It's uh, kind of unusual. <laughs> <laughs> So, okay. um, so, so there's a screen on the front of the thing that has eyeballs. It has your eyeballs. So there's cameras in the headset. So the idea is, is that when you're wearing it, people around will still see your eyes or at least a representation of it. And, um, okay. th that's how that works. And it's an interesting function. I was looking in the mirror and I'm not a hundred percent sure that I agree that it's completely accurate either, but it did do it. So, um, I think the jury's out for me on that, but as far as the rest what of it the goes, point of that? The point of it, I think, is to make it look like to the environment you're around you that you are not so isolated. I also think it's Apple wanting to have something that's unusual and not seen in their competing products. I don't know that it's a bad thing. I just think I mean, it was it was unusual. So to me, it sounds like something else that could break down. <laughs> it is. I'm sure it is. And I'm sure that, you know, we'll see some yeah. of that stuff. But if it did, I'm also not sure that you would need to fix it. Yeah. You know, um. So in any event, they've set this up uh, for their operating system, spatial computing. This is a term that you'll probably hear um, so that you're able to almost in an augmented reality environment interact with the world around you. So it does virtual reality like what you would think of as virtual reality. You're immersed in an alternate universe of some kind, metaverse doing it. It does play Beat Saber, by the way, so it does have at least one for sure good use. But, uh, <laughs> but um, the way that it works within the environment around you is actually a lot better than the MetaQuest in that you actually have a menu or something superimposed, but you're still seeing the environment you're in like an augmented reality, but correctly. So yeah. you can deal with that. So I had a mode on it where I said it. there's this thing where you can watch movies and it creates a big screen television. I was sitting in my living room and it felt like I was living sitting in my living room. The stuff around me was what was supposed to be around me and all of that but I had a 200 inch screen it was actually quite high res, you know? So in any event, uh, so overall, I think, you know, from just seeing this and getting to play with it a little bit, it wasn't, you know, there's been a lot of hype about it, but it does do some things quite well. I don't think I personally would spend $3,500 on it. Excuse me, $3,499. But, um, <laughs> But I also have to say that as far as kind of looking at this as a, you know, like an iPad or an iPhone type thing and driving a market that will create a need and an actual use for virtual reality that we haven't seen so far, I think it will do that very well. Definitely has its place. Um, sound was great, you know, all of that kind of stuff. And 
one of the things I like that it may require me getting a MetaQuest 3 is it has Atmos built into it. So, you know, that's uh, that's necessary. Uh, Atmos, for anybody that doesn't know, is a Dolby sound, uh, object-oriented sound system, so that dealing with something that actually immerses you in a real environment and stuff. So, yeah, you know. Yeah, sound is cool. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, sound is cool, but good sound is even better and sometimes hard to come yeah, by. Yeah, that's you know? what I'm getting at. And uh, and that's that's where where that goes. So virtual reality, I think, has its place. I think that we're going to see a lot more of these things coming out. But I do think that now we might see a way to set this stuff up and actually have a application of it that's going to be more something that can be consumed by the average computer user than some of the other things that we've seen, like even like HoloLens, Google Glass, and some of these things very specific to what you were doing with them uh, and also very expensive. Right. Although this is along the lines of the same price as Google. So see that where that ends up. But um, some of the feedback too, that I've been seeing on this is the fact that this is the first one that doesn't look like a big bulky thing. You're strapping over your head, even though it is, which is probably also part of the oh, reason nice. why it has the eyeballs. <laughs> oh, just to uh, take away from that. Although putting it on a screen just for that purpose, I don't know. Hey, you know. So what do you guys think? Do you think that virtual reality is going to come back now, or do you think we're still kind of seeing this as a one-off? I think that it's I don't know. I think growing. Yeah, I agree with Bill. I think it's growing. And I think it's I think it's gonna take some time. I think we're gonna have think to it's figure gonna out go Beat away. Saber, get that going again. <laughs> yeah, I really miss that. That was a lot of fun. Yeah. And I know on the Oculus, you know, we enjoyed that. There there was a Star Wars movie that you interacted with, a Darth Vader thing. Yeah, um, um, Vader Immortal. Yeah, I, I got the first one, and there's, I think, there might be three. I think so. There could be four by now, because I haven't been able to get into my um, my Oculus. But uh, it was fun, you know? It, it, was, it was neat, and so I was looking forward to being able to do that again and maybe get the second one. and. It was just kind of fun. Yeah, I miss it. I don't know. It just uh, kind of seeing where this is headed. I mean, it has its place. But whether it's going to be big as like yeah. a Nintendo or something someday or PlayStation, I don't know. But, uh, well, have you seen, have you seen, there's some tech out there where the, um, they've made like a floor that you can walk on. Mm-hmm. Like, but you're walking in place. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I saw that in Ready Player and One. so that would... <laughs> No, 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 no. This was this was real. Yes. Oh, yeah. It, it exists. Not in the movie. Yeah. And it looked like it was functioning pretty well. So I think that would really help this. Yeah. No, I, yeah. I, I, I'm joking a little bit with that, but it does seem like there is some movement to having peripherals that work well for that type of thing. Because that is one of the big issues of it. I know that we've all experienced, too, is there's two ways to use these type of systems. One is stationary, where you're you know sitting on the couch and watching something. But if you really want to interact, like even a Beat Saber game or a lot of the other things that are out there, Minecraft's another big one that uses these kind of things, you have to be able to move. So you need enough space that you're not going to crash into the wall or trip over the cat or something while you're trying to use the uh, use it. So having like what you're talking about actually does make a lot of sense. And that actually brings me to the other thing where we've been starting to see this a little bit. And there are places that maybe are inappropriate to use it, like while you're driving your Cybertruck. Or your Tesla. 
or even walking down the street. There's been some issues that um, people don't seem to understand that a virtual reality headset could be a distraction while <laughs> operating a motor vehicle, you know? So, oh boy. I think uh, okay, you know, I'm making a face just be so careful the users of these know. things. Yes. I mean... <laughs> We're going to have video pretty soon, but it would have been worth it to get a screen grab of that. But it actually is a, is a valid thing to talk about because in all reality, people are doing that and you do want to exercise some common sense and be safe and use it in yeah. an area where it's appropriate to do that. But uh, not everybody does. Anyway, let us know what you it's think about virtual reality. If you have or are going to get one of these new Apple Vision Pros, let us know what you think about that. We'd love to hear from you, userfriendly.show. Till next week, this is User Friendly 2.0, keeping you safe on the cutting edge. User Friendly 2.0 is copyright 2013 to 2024 by User Friendly Media Group Incorporated. All rights reserved. Opinions expressed on the show are those of the hosts and guests and not this radio station. Please check out userfriendly.show for airtimes and podcasts.